Hello, Internet. Welcome to another stintillating tale on Never Stay Dead. Let's get stintillated. All right. Uh, I'm the Matt Man, here with my co-host. Damnation. <laughs> oh, all right, all right. I'm digging I it. am Damien, uh, known to many as Sleepy Reader on YouTube. And I'm known to nobody on YouTube anymore, uh, so that works known out. Known to me is Agent Forty Two Q. I can't wow. like a. I actually love that name, Agent Forty Two Q, which is Matt's first name on YouTube till he changed it to Wednesday Serial, which is probably makes more sense as a channel talking about comics. I, I guess so. Um, <laughs> so and now he's retired from that and is a master of the podcast world. I, I well, I made a video not you too did. long ago, yeah, and I watched it. Yeah, how was that? <laughs> It was good. Let's dig it. <laughs> I'll edit this out afterwards, but... Uh... Oh, all right. That, that's fair. Um, we're here today to talk about a comic I really enjoyed called Tokyo Ghost. Uh, this one is a Rick Remender joint with Sean Gordon Murphy on pencils and I believe inks, and then Hollingsworth on colors. Matt Hollingsworth. Right. And Matt Hollingsworth is important to mention it. And Sean Gordon Murphy. I was thinking, did he at one point go by just Sean Murphy and then he added the Gordon? I it's, can't it's remember a time. On right. my version, it just says Sean Murphy. It could be. I He's embedded in my mind as Sean Gordon Murphy. Anyway, that's not important. Sean Murphy's an incredible artist. Um, Rick Remender is uh, a good writer. Um. <laughs> hey, he has his hits. He has his misses. Yeah, and I, I think what's great about Rick Remender is what his misses for me are really big hits for other people. He really diversifies the world of comics with what he lays down, I feel. That's true. Anyways. And he's a very unique voice. Um, and I think it was kind of really cool that they did... I. They did a novel here, right? It was just 10 issues, which makes for about a novel length read. And that's mm -hmm. the end of the story. And, and yeah. there's no coming back to the story. It's not a franchise or anything like that. And it's a hardcore science fiction story. Yeah. And that's one thing I wanted to get to here is like, this is now that it's completed a book you can pick up, read, enjoy, and put down. And I wish there was more of these out there right right and it's it's very intense it doesn't let go of you know there's no flab in terms of the the uh propulsion of the story should should i try to summarize the story quickly or did you want to do that if you want to summarize this one go for it man it's not an easy that's i just think trying to summarize this one is right but we have to give rough. a sense of it anyway yeah definitely and if you want me to jump in feel free i just so the the novel is set in a sort of post-global warming, post-cyberpunk kind of world where everybody is addicted to technology and drugs and escapism as the world is kind of falling apart and rotting. And the, the corporate elites, I guess, are leeching the last bit of money and entertainment out of the world <laughs> before it's all too late. And our heroes are Debbie Decay and Led Dent. Debbie is like supposedly the last person in LA, which is now a kind of a kingdom made of islands, last person in LA to not use the, not be a technology addict. And her technology addicted boyfriend, Led Dent, is kind of like a Judge Dredd style private policeman constable, he's called. Um, do kind of fighting criminals, but also just doing the bidding of a big corporation led by a guy named Flack. And mm -hmm. uh, Debbie wants to go to there's one part of Tokyo where there's no technology and technology doesn't work there. And it's kind of a paradise. And Flack sends them there to kill the leader and destroy the uh, EMP that that keeps um, electrical things from working there so that they can invade and take the resources of Tokyo. But Debbie plans to just stay there and, and cut their ties with, with the technological world. So they go to this non-technological world. It's kind of a paradise led by this woman named Kazumi who does have a technology. She's like a human electromagnetic pulse 
Because electromagnetic pulses, I don't know. In stories, they always have these easy-to-use generators of electromagnetic pulses. To my knowledge, it's something generated by an atom bomb that knocks out all the electricity and electrical devices. Batteries die. Everything dies within the range of it. So anyway, she, she can keep technology from existing in this world. And she's kind of the Buddha savior of this world. Um, and they've been, did I say it? Flack has sent them there, Debbie and Led Dent, to um, kill her and open the way for an attack from the forces of the regular technological world and take their resources. And, um, but Debbie's plan is to, to just stay there in paradise and cure Led, Led of his uh, addictions. But various nefarious things happen, which force Led back into his addictions. And then Flack uses this guy named Davy Trauma, who's like the, the ultimate cyberpunk. He can control anyone's brain. Anyone who's jacked in, he can control their brain. And Davy Trauma uses Led Dent to destroy and blow up this sort of paradise of that's called Tokyo, but it's kind of a forest na- uh, nature preserve. Um, so they actually just blow it up and destroy it and not steal its resources. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently uh, Debbie dies there and and Led goes back to work for Flack and they eventually build a, a city on what was the blown up Tokyo that's going to be a paradise for the rich people where they will desert the rest of Earth that's uh, about everyone's just about to be so sunk in their addictions they can't even make money off them anymore i suppose so eventually it turns out debbie's not dead and she's kind of like this avenging ghost uh out a to, tokyo ghost the tokyo ghost there you go um out to destroy flax empire and get revenge and ultimately to save the world and and uh de Ad, uh, remove people from their addictions uh, mm-hmm. to technology. And a whole bunch of different things happen and turnabouts. and But eventually she succeeds and paradise on earth is created, possibly. Right. And I, I just want to jump in and say that is very good summation. And I feel <laughs> like part of the reason you were kind of struggling with it is this book does a fairly good job of tying character development to plot and forward movement and making sure there's always something new on both angles for a number of characters going throughout for 10 issues this is pretty darn well packed and i've got to say it's really depressing to me interesting okay and Um, and, you know rick remender in other comics has come out publicly about being a, a depressed person i felt like everything was pushed to the ultimate bad level and all of humanity except for debbie and i guess kazumi uh, gives into their most dire weaknesses and selfishness and greed i mean the entire world except for one or two people uh, which i guess is kind of uh to me like an adolescent kind of depression where you really believe everyone else in the world sucks but you (laughs) yeah so there's a lot a lot of themes in this book it definitely hinges darker i didn't think of it i guess the way you did because in my mind like when you get to a certain level of sci-fi and futurism it's usually pretty dystopian usually pretty Uh negative but ultimately there is kind of a seed of hope and a seed of progress within this book but it on its face you can't even ignore this theme at all there's very much the nature versus technology right deal going on um which leads to some amazing art yes and that's i mean for the art alone this is like this is an incredible comic book or incredible graphic novel really with just mind-blowingly good art it, it almost blows my mind that he could produce so many good panels after so many good panels they're not i don't know they're on a level far beyond most other comic books at least in their consistency of excellent stuff after excellent stuff after excellent stuff right um i know um just due to a small interview i listened to and whatnot before that they were working on this book you know years before they released it initially because remender has been pretty upfront about wanting to make sure books are always released on time because otherwise he loses a lot in the numbers which is fair yeah he's a businessman along with the creator well but also like as a fan you know like he's taking the time to do it ahead of time which means they're ultimately going to be producing a better book because they're not rushing to get out an issue so i try to take it in the most positive light so i'm no no it's actually a good way to do it not just as a businessman i take that back but 
Oh, well, so maybe right that too. explains that. I mean, Murphy is always a really good artist, but this is really primo Murphy artwork. This book, I think, is special to his artwork, and um, I, I just, I, I love it. The only part that gets me sometimes is there's kind of these lines around the eyes that he does on a lot of the males that I don't know quite what they're going for there, but it was somewhat distracting at times. Yeah, he likes to draw a lot of lines around their eyes as if they're kind of all clenched up or something. Yeah, um, it, it distracted me at times, but uh, overall, it's a pretty amazing powerhouse book. Yeah. And I think... And it, and Matt Hollingsworth oh, is yeah. really one of the best colorists out there, I think, at least for kind of fantasy and science fiction books. Because mm-hmm. um, I, I, he's, he's done amazing work most recently on Little Bird, which was also a post-apocalyptic kind of book of a different sort than this. But And he made that look amazing. Yeah. So what do you... So you picked this book out, and you you stated earlier it was kind of a favorite of yours. It's something I remembered really enjoying, and in rereading it, I found I didn't really remember as much as I thought, but a lot of the general movements I did. And there's just, I think part of the reason I like this book, and rereading it, I found strengths and weaknesses that I hadn't considered before. This is far from like a perfect book or one of the best books or anything Mm -hmm. like that. There's definitely some weaker points, especially in the writing, and especially initially in the first two issues in the dialogue, which um, when we were kind of conferring back and forth, uh, you read a little bit and you said, I don't know about this. And I was like, I think it will grow on you. I don't think you'll love it, but... uh, Right. The first... Yeah, yeah, sorry to interject, but for me, the first two issues read like someone just trying to top every over-the-top violent comic book or movie that ever existed. Mm -hmm. And I I found that tiresome and just a little cringy. Like, how much am I supposed to just be getting off on people's faces being rubbed off and other, you know, Matt... Uh, razor blades going through crowd or you know giant saw blades going through clouds and mowing through people and all of the the gore splattering everywhere i guess in a way you can kind of admire it for going so far over the top it's it's kind of like the most extremes of um uh a clockwork orange combined with judge dread of the uh i haven't read that many judge dread stories but there's a certain grim violence to those and just pushing it up to 11 i guess in a sense well and uh, and that's to really build this villain that we have in davy trauma because this whole book um so the hinge of it is that society is in this vr laden you know hellscape where things are so bad generally across the world that most people are escaping into their own headsets with um, programs and just like the most lowest common denominator kind of entertainment. obviously a metaphor for people on their cell phones and computers now but mm. to a, a point where it is like heroin addiction and you're feeding your brain a constant trickle of virtual reality and social media and everything else. And you can see in kids when you give them an iPad or something that they get very upset or a lot of kids get very upset when you say, okay, now it's time to stop. It's very hard for the brains of younger children to, and maybe for some adults too, but it's very noticeable in children to switch gears back to reality in a sense. Um, So you can imagine a society where everyone has been sort of, you know, this, their mother's milk is this sort of ultra, ultra intense cyberpunk virtual reality lifestyle. Well, and this, the headsets that they use are very akin to what's coming out now. And um, it, it sparks something because I was listening to an interview with John Carmack, who's the guy who's really pushing forward headsets right now. And the way they're designed in here and the way he's talking about it, he's like, well, you know, it's escape and very useful for some people who are uh, a lot of it lined up with kind of the themes of this book. Right. And the people pushing forward those headsets don't have those considerations. And a lot of what's going on in this book, as far as how general society goes, is really not that far off in a way that most dystopian future novels compared to where they were written. Um, I don't, it's not normally that close. It's uh, kind of fascinating knowing that this book's only a few years old at this point. Another thing that struck me while reading it, and sorry for getting quote political, is that yeah. a, in a lot of ways, the um, the bad guy, Flack, reminded mm-hmm. me of a, a liberal nightmare version of Donald Trump 
which Donald mm-hmm. Trump was not president, and I don't know if he was even running for president yet when this comic was originally written and drawn. Was it 2015 or so? Yeah, there was some echoes of it, but I, it did hit on some of those ideas that if you're going to do political satire of the Trump age, it's definitely held within this book, right. especially in the first half. Right, but it may not have been intentional. It may have just been a, a nightmare vision of the ultimate rich egoist who just takes total advantage of the world, which is what at least us liberals think Donald Trump is. <laughs> well, and maybe it goes beyond Trump, but right. I mean, this is not exactly a new idea either. Um, and so carrying that forward, I mean, there's some echoes of this in like the Dark Knight Returns or whatever, right? Like uh, this sort of politician that's ultimately kind of a hedonist, but with a sense of grandeur. Mm-hmm. And the the metaphor, and again, this is a moment well, I'm sure you balked at. Kind of weird because he's almost always naked, and people are giving him blowjobs, and we're watching that happen. Yeah, that's what I was going to get to when the uh, when the reporter literally fellates him, and you sit there and the characters are watching. It's just kind of like, huh? It's yeah. The political satire is a little um, cartoonish, a little right. too simplistic to. Well, between the violence and that kind of stuff, it you know it verges. It's like well, like a lot of uh, things that try to satirize things, it verges on being in part what it's criticizing like getting off on fantasies of violence and you know sexual power without consequence is kind of at times what you could get sucked into here that some readers could read this and just be getting off on it well so let dent maybe getting off on his sex things being fed into his brain right so we have our lovers debbie decay who's the person who's never used technology really and led dent who was they grew up together and he didn't for the longest time but to protect her do something um when he was teddy um he he goes and gets jacked and basically gets booted into the system and becomes led dent and becomes kind of this monster that she feels she has to help out because it was them against the world very literally and so yeah the the criticism's there but this is the world they're in is just this hedonistic like base instinct instant gratification world taken to 11 right but it's a world that couldn't really function at at the level that we're watching well and it doesn't right i guess not but you know the 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 weird thing is we talk about everyone being jacked in but then we just we see lots of people just out and about doing things people trying to sell sell you things sell you virtual reality or whatever um you know right so and, and what what else have you um Let's see, here's someone's from zero to hero again. Like, who are the people who are out there selling you getting your new body? <laughs> well, those are the people doing their jobs. When they go home, presumably, they kind of jack in, kind of like, right. you know, a so catch they're still doing. Thing. I mean, the implication, there's, there's just millions of people out there waiting to be slaughtered by other people. <laughs> mm-hmm. who They're actually at um, some kind of sports event. They're not jacked in virtually and stuff. So I felt like there was, if you want to take it seriously, there's a lot of stuff that um, didn't really click with what they said. You had to sort of take this all as a cartoony metaphor in a sense. Right. And again, there is some of that. And that happens a lot throughout this book. And I feel like that's that's the main stuff that drags it down. It, it goes a little too uh, over the top at times that pushes against the message. It is going to clearly push off some readers and some of this metaphor stuff doesn't come through because the world it claims that they're fighting for isn't really what they present but at a higher level the society like it's clearly affected and like you said in your summary like they're going for tokyo to blow it up and make this new you know rich person's paradise that they're going to pave over but it's kind of like well if they're just going to pave it over why do they need to fight for it like they built it in their their rich person's disneyland anywhere well and would it not fit the metaphor better for them to knock over some slum and then build it up right but i mean for his purposes you know uh, he wants to completely take away hope so he wants to give you this place that's paradise and then destroy it right um a a lot i i mean 
So for me, and I know that we each read this kind of differently, for me, I felt the manipulation of Remender, the writer. Throughout, I felt manipulated by him on purpose. And maybe because of the overtop violence of the first two, two chapters, I was already kind of, I withdrew from the story a little bit. Like the mm-hmm. way you might watch a disturbing horror movie, you, watch, you, you become an observer and you tell yourself this isn't real. You know, I kind of was at a distance from it and I felt a remender trying to make me upset <laughs> in a sense, mm-hmm. rather than feeling just upset. I felt him making me, you know, so I had that level on things. I was still surprised when he destroyed Tokyo, the Tokyo paradise so completely. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and so I see that. And so when you start off a book, it's really supposed to set the tone and and kind of set where you're going. But in this book, the initial two issues are setting up this world that we're one way or another leaving behind, no matter who wins. Right. And uh, so it's, it's really kind of a starting point. Arguably, the story starts a little too early and should have just flashed back to this. Right. But there's so much kind of character development in it because we really need to establish um, Debbie and Led's history and state of where they're at currently, which is a little hard to do. And it's no mistake that this character character's name is Dent because he effectively became a two-face the minute he became Led Dent. Yeah. Um, oh, I hadn't thought of that. But it's more like he puts on a mask. It's not like a duality thing like Two-Face, but very clearly and it's hard to ignore like the cover I have. He's drawn like Two-Face between Led and uh Teddy. Well, there's a number of interesting things about him because he basically he gets beat up and humiliated and becomes uh, the laughing stock of the virtual world for a week on on their version of YouTube because they film beating him up. And then he goes and gets himself, this is all in a flashback, and he, he goes and gets himself jacked up and turned into a superhero. It's kind of like Steve Rogers getting turned into Captain America only. And, and he becomes a supposed lawman, but only because it gives him the excuse to beat up whoever he wants, I guess. Right. And so the these people who beat him up once, he goes and he beats up and kind of kicks out. And they end up before Debbie and Led going to Tokyo and becoming... Um, right. Which is uh, odd because it seems like he'd killed them all, but I guess in the end enough of yeah. them survived their numbers must have been greater than i thought at first because um, <laughs> he killed a good number of them but then a good number of them still survived right so his own sins come back to destroy things i guess um but what i don't you know again because it, it was the kind of thing where i kept questioning things so i sh- where i shouldn't have i guess like why is lead dent better than everyone else because he's just another wimpy kid who got himself jacked up and anyone could have got the same operations that's a great question and again where i think it does fall a little loose because i was about to say something like that because you compared him to captain america but i'm like there's something about steve rogers where we feel he's kind of earned it or there's something that makes sense about him being greater he just needed the physical boost right um teddy's weak in spirit and kind of going along long for it and then is doing everything for the wrong reasons uh so this idea that he's somehow the best especially when he's barely keeping it together and he gets totally jacked in completely addicted right away and then debbie's just kind of string him along but a big plot point throughout is it's a complete strain on the relationship because it's against everything that they did initially together and she keeps thinking like is this pain worth it we should say their relationship was based on the fact that neither of them were jacked in while their parents and everyone else were um but she kind of unjacked him so one thing about her is she is always his savior and he wants to be the one who saves her. And I don't think she ever totally gets that all the way through to the end, even though it's this great love story. She basically, he feels unmanned by her. And he gets addicted to technology and everything because of that feeling of being unmanned. Well, I think the very last chapter at the last moment, she does get that. And that's kind of the emotional clincher of the book but it is very much in the last chapter at the last minute in the way that saves the world he well he convinces her he's or some version of him is in virtual reality after his body's been destroyed and from Mm -hmm. there he convinces her to do the right thing for humanity rather than the right thing for reuniting the two of them 
Right. Um, why he now thinks that is not clear. Why? Well, because he... it's only a version of him that's in the virtual reality. That's her perfect version of him. So it's not actually him. So the the virtual artificial intelligence that appears to be him must realize that it's all fake and and won't make them happy but they don't say that on the page i kind of wish well, that was made a little more explicit well you gotta spend a little time with the book and true the you've read it more times than i have <laughs> i mean i understand what you're saying but i mean um th- that is a level where i feel like actually not being said explicitly does make it more powerful I suppose so, yeah. But there should be maybe more hints about there's the the effectiveness of, you know, virtual reality is never cast doubt. Mm-hmm. You know, it it's bad for you. You should live in the real world, but it's never, you know, pointed out how fake it is and how it's not. I don't know. I guess that's implicit, but it's... Well, but the idea is that it's perfect at giving you what you want. And so figuring that out. But weirdly, what Debbie wants is so antithetical to the whole VR idea that the VR is telling her not to go into it because that's ultimately what she really wants. It's an interesting play. I I actually dug that because I thought that was such an organic way to reach that end. Whereas I felt something was missing there, that it wasn't played up. That I felt that Remender was in a big rush for his big effects and his big emotional moments. And this is me being a science fiction nerd, you know, outside of comics, that I just felt the whole story would have been a little more effective if he worked a little bit more on the connective tissue of his science fiction world. So gave us a little more background. I'm not talking about a dissertation or anything, but panels here and there that give us a sense of what really works and what doesn't in terms of this technology so that her rejection of it and his addiction to it and then later, even though he's become just a virtual reality ghost, his rejection of it are a little more clear. And if there were any way to uh, give, you know, in the beginning where there's, you know, just people waiting to be slaughtered and tortured by madmen, explain that to me a little more, make it make me believe it a little more. But maybe it's asking too much, because I do think the reason those first two issues were that way is that I think uh, Remender had a, a vision kind of of this Mad Max to the max kind of world beyond Mad Max in terms of the kinetic quality of it he doesn't want anything to stop everything has to keep going forward so everything has to be done through violence and action well and to kind of play on the principle that you're talking about here and something that i did feel is weaker in the book is everybody else in the book is fodder to our main characters they're just collateral or occasional problems to be dealt with and when you're dealing with themes this large to have the the general world feel like props and not that's the true. living breathing entity that they'd be living in yeah it does take away it's kind also, of like opera you know where there's this tragic romance in some opera and then everything else is just literally stage props and someone comes on and sings their violent aria and then they go away and i, I take her looking forward to a few opera reviews from you soon <laughs> i have this uh, probably unrealistic view of opera in my head <laughs> So I want to say what I felt was weaker about the ending is the fact that I never for a second thought Davy Trauma was going to win. I I think Davy Trauma as a villain, as kind of the lieutenant and kind of the over the top guy to play up the hedonistic idea of the book was interesting. But when they subvert Flack and take away the presidential and like seat of power mm-hmm. as the main villain that they worked for and then would come back to like, there is that idea. And then that vanishes when Davy Trauma takes over and as a computer, like you said, kind of the ultimate neuromancer, because this right. is very steeped in the cyberpunk Yeah, Davy Trauma is our both all ultimate hitler psychopath and the ultimate cyberpunk genius who can control everyone else uh, control right. billions of people at once through his cyber powers mm-hmm. kind of like a cyber heat monger something um i and he's supposed to be such a villain but when we finally get debbie decay post um injecting herself with this emp serum so she becomes the tokyo ghost which Quick note, I thought the way her um, uh, speech bubbles changed to actually look more robotic or something and have some sort of effect, I thought was actually a really nice and interesting touch that made me kind of... It was interesting because it made me realize she was going to sound different, but no way did I like have an understanding of how she was supposed to sound. So, I don't know. Well, um, and do you think she can really make a better world? 
without any technology. Well, well, and that's the very ending, right? Where the better world is most people complaining and farming and not doing much. And it's supposed to be a paradise, but she seems to be loving it more than anyone else around her. And then she gets the fuck out to quote unquote be on her own for the first time ever. And is kind of like, okay, I guess it's better. Um, We haven't been shown enough. We haven't been shown enough to know i don't know like is rick remender like i like my technology i don't want to have to spend my entire life as a farmer some people love farming but most people don't um you know there's levels of (laughs) levels of technology that i think are very good for humanity um medicine um all kinds of things but uh and I imagine one could argue that electric heat and electric light may have saved lots of human lives. Um, refrigeration. Well, and, yeah, okay. So I want, I want to talk about that in a bit. But uh, this Davy trauma bit where near the end, you know, he's jacked in. It's all the computer, all this. And he talks about how his, you know, if you have a good enough algorithm, you can predict anything. And when she walks in, he predict that she was going to give in to his argument, you know, within X number of minutes or whatever. And then she doesn't. And I'm like, well, of course she's not going to. And what a friggin' like, like it was this idea presented to us that Noi was earned earlier in the book, except for the fact that, I mean, he's this force of reckoning, but he's also supposed to be a bit chaotic. So the idea that it's all algorithms is a little against what is character's been this entire time right and then the fact that she like goes through and then that vr bit we talked about um was interesting but then she blows up this guy's control over the world and with it all this technology and it's like well of course something was gonna happen here but the idea that it all hinged on whether or not she just suddenly agreed with the character that she's been fighting (laughs) the entire series for no reason it's like of course that's not like it just was like maybe it's a bit metatextual or whatever but there's just no way that i felt that could have happened or would have leaned that way at all well i think remender believes much more in all the negative things that happened than in his happy ending for mm-hmm. whatever reason he wanted to make it a happy ending of this weird sort after destroying everybody's life everywhere um mm-hmm. <laughs> but particularly our heroes lives so i don't know it felt even though it was he gave us a happy ending i felt like it was a book with the, an unhappy book i mean i just left believing the unhappy stuff more than the happy stuff Right. And so we end on this epilogue of Davy Trauma living on in this one kid's Game Boy. Right. Which is like, how much how much data can you fit in a Game Boy? uh, 32 kilobytes in a cartridge. (laughs) Um, So or is it megabytes? And it's been a while. Um, That was a real That's the typical horror movie thing where even though you've killed Freddy Krueger, you just see him in the last scene anyway at the back of the bus or something. Well, and it's this total idea of, like, maybe there will be a sequel to this book, but honestly, like, I I genuinely believe if you ripped those last two pages out of your book, it's a better book. I agree. I agree. Um, And... I don't know. It, there's so many themes and ideas that we can kind of try to work through here. I mean, I really think the play on hedonism and, you know, living for oneself to a self-destructive degree is interesting. And then Debbie Decay's fighting that, but also she sees that through the lens of technology, but she's also self-absorbed in her own ways too, that harms her in certain ways. Right. And I think she harmed him. She harmed Led Dent. I mean, I think literally she was always the stronger person and he always felt that and was became what he became to try to be stronger than her or as strong as her right and so she didn't give him his own uh what's the word activation his own um agency agency right he never had his own agency um but that and that's what kind of in my mind destroyed him Right. And I I also feel like the relationship became toxic for all, but they pushed through, which is interesting. I actually think that's one of the more interesting aspects of the book is that they work through it in a way and then it kind of rebounds regardless when Tokyo is destroyed because of a fight that... Uh, teddy had with the people who attacked him originally that ends up crashing the world around them again like misery just follows this guy 
and in that the death of kazumi is interesting because she's the other kind of super powerful character in this book Mm -hmm. and uh she gets taken down when tokyo gets taken down and the betrayal of those people to her when den attacks and then she gives kind of her legacy to debbie despite the fact that they've only known each other a few days at that point it's kind of interesting that was one of those story gimmies really that somehow because the person's the hero the really good person recognizes the goodness in them right away and gives them rather than her own child or someone else that she'd been like her husband which they actually make a point of in the book and so they have to fight off those members of tokyo well tokyo is burning basically and that's part of the reason why debbie's the sole survivor of that side right if you really look at what what we're given the whole to the whole tokyo paradise would have collapsed somehow something Mm -hmm. would have gone wrong but anyway like you say it's all kind of a backdrop for these two characters to play out their tragedy so um right the other part that kills me too is when they initially get to tokyo it's like two issues and it's the slowest part of the book intentionally so they're in nature it's not this fast-paced thing like it feels very long compared to the rest of the book that's clearly by design but also then it feels like the longest part of the book but if in reading it it's actually the shortest duration right it's a lot of pages but there's less dialogue and less action going on right and so i mean i like that idea i like that feeling but then for them to not have that feeling match the um the energy coming out of that or in a way that narratively matches that pace break it feels like such a missed opportunity is part of the reason why this book feels like it could have been just so much greater with just a little more right touching up well again i mean i think that uh yeah i think remender way too quickly went for his tragedy in paradise i think another Mm -hmm. chapter in paradise of developing that paradise would have made me feel it a lot more when paradise was destroyed well also the idea that these people were there for some reason because they just kind of show up to wreak havoc and we don't need it which i mean at a certain point in the pacing of the book like instead of us having an 11th chapter to kind of just establish that i feel like if the pages were maybe a little more designed around some of that if we built some of their backstory in the initial first two chapters instead of some of the societal stuff that actually never comes to bear right um it would have like if we if we simultaneously kind of grew the cast but also kind of shrunk the scope of the book a little bit uh it would it, it would make the whole thing a little tighter in the long run and i think it's clear that even though they worked on this book ahead of time uh they didn't after kind of completing the initial draft kind of reach back and right you're right yeah complete it well, yeah, it's kind of, I suppose the book is a perfect example of Remender's strengths and weaknesses. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and very few of Sean Gordon Murphy's weak, weaknesses. <laughs> it's a perfect example of all his strengths. Mm-hmm. I guess um, it's funny, early on there was a line about Rick Remender and how he had gone downhill, or not Rick Remender, about Sean Gordon Murphy's best work being... Um, Punk rock, Punk rock Jesus. Jesus. And I do kind of, <laughs> I'm one of the people who kind of feels that. I, I wish that um, that Murphy had other indie books in himself that he wrote. I mean, like his writing is pretty good on the Batman books, but I think he really excelled on, on that Punk Rock Jesus. Uh, he definitely did. And I almost wonder if he story doctored this a little bit, if it wouldn't help. But on the other hand, I wonder how much of Punk Rock Jesus was this labor of love that was kind of in him for years. That right. He was a able kind of a one, once in a lifetime develop. thing. Yeah. Well, Whereas, that book is something special. Yeah. Whereas someone like Remender, obviously, he has a, a knack and a formula for pumping out a lot of books. Or at least it seemed that way for a while. I suppose he slowed down now. Well, what I also found interesting in in relation to themes of this book is Remender is also really known for writing a handful of video games. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, that's that's very interesting because obviously this is an anti-video game comic, comic book along with lots of other things. Right. And um, the fact that this book is coming out of a guy that's maybe closer to some of that end of things than others just makes the rink a little more interesting to me and it makes this idea of complete churn away from this hedonism and you know video entertainment and whatnot and i gotta be honest 
you know, I, I it's funny that they're against all this entertainment, but they're okay with comics, <laughs> which feels a little navel gazy because usually when you get to that sort of level of thing, like when you see a character reading comic books and other bits of popular culture, it's literally like, well, they're just having fun, but it's not like they're actually right. reading or anything. Yeah, comics are often lumped in with video games as being, you know, something that rots your mind or is just a lazy escapism however here he you you could say well the excuse is he's what he's attacking is technology and the addictive nature of technology um you know the way you have to keep you know you have to keep checking twitter and you have to keep checking facebook and keep checking youtube to see if there's a new uh agent 42q video up there and all that but that that sort of never-ending stream whereas comic books you read it now, if you have enough money, I guess you can get a never-ending stream of comic books, but it's it's a little more of a limited thing. But right. you know, there was a time when people thought the same thing about novels. You know, back in the 1800s when novels started being popular, that people were getting lost in fantasy and wasting their time, and that novels, you know, were this terrible mind-rotting thing. Now we now we think of reading novels as kind of a noble intellectual thing. But at one point, it worried people. Right, and so there's a long history of that that I feel is very present in sci-fi in particular, and we've seen a recent resurgence of it with the whole Black Mirror kind of boom and people knocking off that. I haven't seen Black Mirror. All right. Well, it's a. I'll take it as written that it's this kind of anti-technology then. Yeah, I, every episode is taking some new technological idea and making a horror episode about it. So uh, why it's bad? Oh, okay. Um, huh. And so this fits in with that idea. This obviously predates that. Um, though, if we had a comic uh, written by Charlie Brooker, I, you know, I, I'd be checking it out. But is Charlie Brooker um, the producer of Black Mirror? Yeah, he's also a pretty noted uh, British comedian. Oh, okay. Well, I wondered Uh, if you were going to tell me about any uh, anime movies that might be inspirations of this. There's a lot of good cyberpunk in anime, I know. You know, there's definitely the whole Tokyo thing and when the warriors of the natural uh, are are depicted as samurai here. um, There's definitely some of that you know that vibe but i don't get the anime feel from this i actually get a much more closer feel to ronin the frank miller book Uh uh-huh yeah i can see that of course ronin's frank miller was influenced by whatever japanese and french comics he was looking at at the time but primarily lone wolf and cub definitely oh okay um Um, because i i it's been so long like since i've seen ghost in the shell that i don't really remember it but i I feel (laughs) I feel kind of uh, the sense of, of, even though they're trying to make this kind of a gritty, violent comic, the sense of reality kind of stretching a little bit within the sci-fi setting reminds me of the few sci-fi anime movies I've seen, but I've seen them all so long ago that specifics don't stay in my head. But I mean, if you're going to go that route, I think this may pull tighter to, say, Akira. Akira is another um, one that I have seen a long time ago and have faint memories of. God, uh, Ghost in the Shell is such a weird comparison point because Ghost in the Shell, I I mean, there's different modes of Ghost in the Shell, but the manga in particular Uh um, has these weird kind of comic breakdowns but it's also very much a um it's very pro-technology it's trans everything it's i mean transhumanism to the nth degree it's um right and also very big into its military fetishism right it's like the it's almost an antithesis to this book right well, you know, it's funny talking about it now. I feel much better about having read it. And I, I kind of said on Twitter, like the first, after reading the first two chapters, I was like, okay, this is this is kind of making me cringe a bit for the, I guess I was referring to kind of the over top, over the topness and mm-hmm. kind of the, um, you know, let's criticize and get off on violence at the same time kind of feel. But by the end of the comic, I think, well, one, the art really got to me. And two, there, I think I was kind of caught up in the emotional flow of it. And I wasn't questioning it as much on a sci-fi level and, and going with it on a more emotional level. But I also wondered if I, I, I joked that if, if I was like a, um, like a kidnapped victim who eventually sees the point of view of their uh, captor, what's that called, the... Stockholm syndrome. Stockholm syndrome. I could want to say the Amsterdam syndrome. Stockholm syndrome. 
if you spend enough time with this, you start thinking more like Rick Remender. So I, by the end of the comic, I was thinking more like Rick Remender than at the beginning. Well, and that's something too, is I feel like, because I've read a number of Rick Remender comics, but they're mostly, you know, Marvel superhero fare. Uh-huh. This felt more personal. And this actually feels more personal than a lot of his other books that he's done at Image and whatnot. I, I, I feel like there's more of him put into this book because this plays on like we've touched on this book plays on hedonism kind of what he thinks is interesting what he thinks is funny his politics his view of technology his view of kind of this what's good and what's bad whether or not we actually live up to it or do it like there's a lot of judgments and personal calls put into this book in a way that is not put into any of the rest of his work that i've seen right and a lot more penises put into it a lot so yeah this is you know that's how you know it's personal (laughs) they're very personal penises and some of the penises (laughs) shrink a lot and others anyway that there was a weird thing where she was making fun of led's penis that sort of goes to my um but then she told him it was fine but at first she was making fun of it it goes to my feeling that she's really a mistreater of lead despite thinking that he's her great love i you know they're just goofing around you know having yeah. a deep talk after it and she was making fun of him for waxing philosophical while his wangers out you uh, know? Yeah. Uh, i it was a sweet tender moment in my mind but oh, okay well i don't like it when women insult my penis but uh if it's for you that's sweet and tender i uh <laughs> wow i'm just joking all right i i wish i could find that scene but it's too hard to find on my digital copy here uh too flaccid to find i'm too flaccid right now um so i think i just distracted us from a larger point we were making (laughs) but but what the reason i joked about the penis is is yes he couldn't do that i mean here he can do it he hey i can do anything and i'm going to prove it to you by all these outrageous things that you've never seen in a marvel comic or a dc comic or even most image comics and i'm just gonna i'm just gonna do it all take that dc black label right i mean and it you can't accuse him of like um objectifying women because there's much more penises than anything else well and in a weird way i feel like this is a feminist book um the women are more powerful the story is ultimately about them the men are kind of unless it's a reaction against the powerful women even though like well it's a view of the world where the women are powerful and the men are weak but it doesn't make the world get better except the, the fake getting better at the end i guess yeah but i i feel there's something to that i don't know i you know i I may not be the best to give you the deepest feminist reading on anything, but there's some, there's more bearing for it there than it feels like it should. Maybe I don't like the, um, the men are weak, women are strong paradigm. I, I like the we're strong together paradigm. So I almost think it's uh, false feminism, especially when men, men, um, you know, lean into this, oh, I'm so weak and women forgive me for my sins kind of thing. I don't know. Okay, hashtag comic skate. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I heard Malin say that. Uh... <laughs> well, within every lie is some truth in my <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I mean, there, there's an aspect of that played on here, too. Um, this book could very easily push a lot of buttons, uh, which is interesting. But it was funny, too, because when you were talking about kind of the maturity and going through all of that and how the book kind of gets there. Mm-hmm. It made me think this is almost a faster turnaround than what I've seen of Chip Zdarsky. Like, Rick Remender pulls it off in one book. It felt like it took Zdarsky about a decade to go from being the goofy guy to turning out some serious books with some, you know, a little deeper thought to it. Well, and Remender's done other books that look serious. I I started to, I read the first volume of Low, and I collected more volumes, but I haven't read them yet. Mm-hmm. Mostly because it was so depressing that I was kind of, even though he said this was his book written by over the recovery from depression. But well, and I feel like Low uh, was a different to me. Low's more much more plot heavy, mm-hmm. and so it's so kind of caught up in its ideas and movements and whatnot that it never has a chance to kind of really get personal. Huh. But maybe I haven't read it in a while, so. I wondered if Lowe would have been better if it was only like two volumes like this. Um, the thought of reading 
so many volumes of Lowe is kind of what has not that I do want to go back and read it. It also has great art. Um, but I I'm not a huge fan it. of Tachini for comics. Uh-huh. Like it's pretty to look at, but it's hard to decipher. Yeah, you have a point there. Yeah, it's been a long time since I read it, but I think I remember what you're talking. About. Yeah, but Tachini did um, the Last Days of American Crime, right? Because I remember that being pretty strong. I never read that, so I don't. Okay, I don't know whether he did. I actually only know him from Lowe. Okay, to my knowledge. Mm. So, uh, I, don't know. I think I've said all my complaints and pleasures from this book. I think it was, I'm glad in the end I read it. And, and because we were doing it together, I had to read through it. And it mm-hmm. took me a while to get into it, that those first two issues, even though there's a part of me that enjoys the sort of non, nonstop violent action, they, they threw me off. And, and it took a number of issues to get back into the book. Yeah. I guess the last bit I'd say is I'd really push you if you're listening to read this. I mean, there's so much in here. There's like we've been talking about uh, all this character stuff. There's also so I mean, you have that masculine feminine thing. There's an East versus West thing. There's a, you know, nature versus technology thing. There's a uh, kind of there's kind of a few I'd say four kind of philosophies presented in this book loosely. There's a lot to grab onto, And if there's kind of some different thoughts in your your head at the time i think you could read this book and get a very different take from it like i bet if you and i read this again in i don't know a couple of years or something you could have a completely different conversation around it there's a lot of cool stuff in here that it touches on which makes the book feel stronger than it actually is which is somewhat frustrating but it's a good book but it feels like it should be a great book but it just can't be bothered to bring itself there <laughs> Well, yeah, I think I agree with everything you've said. Um, anyway, so I'm really glad I read it. And I and you're right, it, it would be interesting to reread it again someday. Um, so maybe we'll just eventually do podcasts about books we've already done podcasts on and redo them and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, when our, when our fan base is a little bigger. <laughs> yeah, by the way, well, probably uh if anyone's still listening i get most of the listens we get on this podcast are when it's republished to my channel if people could leave reviews on itunes that might help us get a few more subscribers and keep us going um not because we're trying to do a patreon and make money but just so that it feels worth doing this as opposed to just doing it on youtube entirely um so if you like this as a podcast I mean, other podcasts are always reminding people to leave leave uh, reviews on iTunes, and we should probably do that more in hopes of uh, helping us keep going. Yeah. Well, I, in, in this case, it's an honest, like, I think we'd do this anyways, but if right. we might like... just do it on YouTube, though, someday, if, if the podcast never kind of picks up. Right. Because if no one's really listening yeah. on a podcast, why bother? Right. We'll, we'll always do some form of, because we always have, we've had a great time for years, first on YouTube and now here chatting about specific books. So we're not going to get And now we just kind of have a name for it, a little, little bit of format around it, I guess. Gives us a little more focus. And, and if, if like potentially we would do it more often as a podcast than on youtube probably um Hmm. we've had our ups and downs but i think this is like our 19th episode or somewhere around there yeah and well we've kind of committed to try to do this a bit more frequently and kind of have some books ideas what held us up for the longest time is we were supposed to read some uh spirit and we just (laughs) couldn't pull the trigger on which a lot of the fault lies on me I would well, like to blame it on Matt having a baby, but it was actually my indecisiveness about something. Well, I was stuck in a hotel for a while and I couldn't record for two months. That's definitely on me. But That's, yeah. Well, it's on Mother Nature and the refrigerator makers. Well, no, it was it was on technology, not on Mother Nature. Much to the theme of this book. Don't get refrigerators, people. Just use a cooler. Don't get fridged. Yeah. <laughs>